Yes, if you will please find your way to now John chapter 7. As we continue to work through the book of John, I hope you are beginning to gain an appreciation for its depths and for the sheer breadth of issues that it addresses, that Christ himself speaks. There is no other more densely packed repository of the words of Jesus Christ than the Gospel of John. Here, we hear from him directly. And that comes with things that are clear, that comes with things that are unclear, but may, I, may we all appreciate together that they are from his mouth to our ears. And for us to hear them well, the Holy Spirit continues to illumine our hearts to the truth of these things. It is not the purpose of Scripture, nor the purpose of the words of Christ, to simply answer the questions of mankind. Mankind doesn't even ask the right questions. It is the purpose of the Scriptures, and it is the purpose of the words of Christ, to speak the revelation of God, whether we would desire to hear it, or whether we're even asking those questions at all. One of the aspects of the gospel that stands out to me so much is the reality that mankind never would have come up with something that didn't glorify himself on some level. Every other religion tells you steps that you can do to make their God happy. Follow his rules and all will be well. Follow the rules of the natural world and you can achieve states of nirvana. You can achieve heaven. Even through your suffering or through your purging, you may attend unto the celestial heights. It is the gospel alone that comes from God and says, no, you can't. But there is one who did. The gospel does not say, do this, do this, do this, and you will live. This gospel says, it is finished. Trust in him who did the work, and you will live. Believe on him, and you will live. This is the core teaching of the gospel of John. It was the core teaching of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was the core teaching of the apostles, and it is the core teaching of all who are faithful to Christ and his teachings. We do not teach that our judgment or our beginning point are places that are good. We come to the very realization that unless God is doing it, there's very little value in it. And when it comes to salvation, unless God is doing it, there's no value in it. You can't save yourself. Nobody can think their way into faith. It doesn't work like that. It is God who gifts these things. It is God who has stated them. It is God who will gift them. It is God who will save us. And friends, even if you've been a Christian and practiced being a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years, every single day you are preserved by the supernatural power of God, not by your righteousness. It is God who saves his people from their sins. I say this because after the close of John chapter 6, 
we have reached a transition point in the Gospel of John where it will start looking towards Jerusalem. The happenings of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the next day the teachings regarding the body and the blood of the Lord who are stand-ins for the reality that is his words, his revelation, our faith in him. This is how true life comes. And that hard teaching, that was occurring in the springtime. The second we cross over to John chapter 7, we're six months later in the time of the fall, the Feast of Booths. A fascinating time. John just completely skips over half a year of the ministry of Christ to focus us on this story. It doesn't mean that those other things aren't important. It means that they are not there to focus us onto the purpose. Why is John writing this? That we, you and I, who are reading this, would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. The reason why I declare this is because I think sometimes one of the great fall uh, falter points of conservative churches is we attach faith with the occurrence of our salvation, not with our life today. We go, we're saved by faith, which is true. But my friends, the path we walk is no different. The path we walk is a path of faith and dependence on the Lord every single day. It's not just something that merited us salvation. No, it is something that drives us every moment we wake up to the moment we pass to sleep again. And then the next day repeat the same. We live a life of faith. Dependence on the Lord. Believing his word. Entrusting our souls to him. Trusting that when he says something, it is worthy of our acceptance whether we like it, whether we asked for it or not. And Jesus here in John chapter 7 shows us our weaknesses in this. There is a natural revulsion to this. It's part of what I had declared before in a sermon called A Gospel That Insults. It's something that doesn't match us right where we're at. So the things that mankind brings forth and are able to garner followers to matches us where we are and answers the questions. How can we make God happy? Well, do this, do this, and this, and everything's fine. It's, it's a single step, a double step. It makes it sense. But when the gospel comes in and says, no, you can't do that. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Not only can you not make God happy, because that's not the standard of it. The standard of it is holiness and on the other side of it, you don't have the ability to affect the emotions of God. It doesn't work like that. God is God, and we are not. That's where we start. God's holiness is not servable by unholy methods. And God's gospel reminds us of these things often. Jesus here in this story will make us come face to face with the reality that our natural way is to judge the world by appearances. This is where we will end up in, in verse 24. It is a common thing these days to tell people that we're not to judge anybody. Well, that's nonsense. You judge everything all the time. You make decisions. That's what discriminating is. It just means to choose between two things. You make decisions, you make choices, you make judgments. You're here this morning. You made several judgments in order to get here this morning, didn't you? Some of them involved avoiding other people on the road. 
unless you're one of those people with all the scrapes up and down their cars, and maybe you were the one trying to be avoided. You made decisions, you made judgments, you made calls. I know yesterday there was a lot of snow on the ground, and I know where I live, they didn't take care of it and put any salt on the roads. Some people made bad judgment calls, and their cars ran over trees and flipped over in the roads, and there was dozens of accidents yesterday. Bad judgment. Christians are not called to make no judgments. We're called to make right judgments. Verse 24 says it plainly, and this is where we will end up. Do not judge by appearances. That's the normal way of mankind. We just judge by appearances, but instead judge with right judgment. So how in the world can we do that? Well, thankfully, there's 23 verses that headed up that kind of show us the reality of this, and we're going to work through them fairly quickly. That's very relativistic language. Fairly quickly. I would ask you to stand in honor of God and his word. We'll read it. And I pray to God we will know it and love it. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. By the way, remember, this is six months later. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brothers said to him, yes, his actual physical brothers, said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. In other words, this is no way to get famous. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Goodness. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always now. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Ouch. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, said, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that it reminds us of Christ, his submission to your purpose and your will. 
May we follow in his example. But Father, more than that, may we trust in him and find in him right judgment. May we trust your word and find in it right judgment. May we, Father, not to seek to establish our own righteousness or seek our own fame, but may we likewise follow his example and seek only the glory of you, of your kingdom, and of those things that are specifically given to your people to glory in and to rejoice in until your kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we look to this passage with gratitude. Not intending to go up at the beginning of the Feast of Booths, but his brothers, this is just the setting, his brothers say, look, if you really can do all of these acts, these signs, these magical things. Now, understand, they're saying this from a point of disbelief. His brothers did not believe in him at this point. And so they're saying, look, obviously you have your mind set on fame. But if you have your mind set on fame, this is the worst place to be doing all of these things. You need to go to Jerusalem. And this is the time of the Feast of the Booths, one of those three feasts where everyone goes to Jerusalem. You want to make a name for yourself. This is the state fair. Go. Do your tricks in front of everyone and you will have the fame that you so obviously seek. Quite an offensive thing to say, isn't it? Especially since we only find out in retroflex they didn't believe in him at all. And so Jesus says to them, no, no, no. You think that any time is okay for me to go up. It's not. My time is not today. You go up today. I'll go up in a few days. And he waits till the feast is half over. Not because he is cowering in fear from anyone, because the first thing he goes and does is preach in the temple during the Feast of Booths. That's a remarkable thing. Everybody sees him there. This is not trying to hide from anyone. We don't know the reason he didn't go up for the first half of the feast. John doesn't tell us. <clears throat> a word on the Feast of Booths, because it's important. The Feast of Booths is not just a random thing that Jesus is going to visit that week. The Feast of the Booths is a time where they would come together annually and they would live in tents rather than their house. Very similar to the, to the, uh, to the act of Passover, is reminding them of when they were in slavery. You had the leavened, unleavened bread because we didn't have time to wait for it to rise. You had bitter herbs to remind us of slavery. Everything about it was to remind them of their time in Egypt. The Feast of Booths was there to remind them of their time in the desert when they lived in tents. And it had blossomed into this tradition where they had all sorts of music, they had all sorts of... It. It was a state fair. It was the time that everyone loved. Passover was a time of mourning yet deliverance. It's kind of like our Good Friday, right? It, we call it Good Friday, but it's such a dark day and the passages we're looking at are suffering. And, but we call it Good Friday because we know the outcome of it. It's kind of like Passover for them. But the Feast of Booths is kind of like Christmas to us. It's this time of, of reminding that, that God had promise to us, a promised land, but there was a time where we didn't live in it yet and we hadn't fully realized the realities of this yet. It is that feast that Jesus chooses to go up to Jerusalem and to preach and to teach them about these things, and it is that time that they're seeking to kill him. Kind of a remarkable thing. One of those things where when he establishes this teaching... He doesn't set it and make it about himself. Even though everything centers on what he's doing, the focus is always on the Father. 
He doesn't speak of his own authority. He speaks with the authority of the Father. He doesn't even do miraculous works on his own ability. He does them with the work of the Holy Spirit. Remarkable thing. He had the authority and he had the ability to do works, but he doesn't do them from those things. His role is to be the servant of the Lord. We just read Isaiah 53 this morning. We know the story of the servant of the Lord and how it will end. It's going to end with him going as a sheep to the slaughter, bearing the iniquities of his people. But that hour has not yet come. Let's pick it up and make a run through the narrative section and we will sit more towards the end of this a bit. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went up to Galilee and he would not go about into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand and so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. It's not just his 12 disciples. They knew the works that he was doing. It was anyone who purported to follow him. Now realize also, All these brothers are younger brothers. Jesus is their oldest brother. And so what they're saying is actually quite derogatory towards him. Uh, They don't have the right to be telling him to do this in this culture. And yet, because so many are seeking his life and so many are trying to follow him, and from their interpretation of the events, he's just seeking to be famous. He's just our older brother that has, you know, eyes on the stars type thing. Aiming for the moon, and if you miss, you'll hit, what, the stars? That kind of idea. He, he's aiming as, as high and as far as he can. Imagine, just for a second, being in their perspective. They grew up with Jesus as their older brother. All right, bring that, bring that down to just how that must have been experienced. If someone breaks the vase, and you're trying to blame each other, who's mom going to believe? The one that she knows is the savior of the world, the son of God, or you. (laughs) Think about their experience growing up. That's a rough childhood. You want to talk about living in the shadow of a very overachieving elder sibling, this is that times infinity. And so there's a lot of resentment here. Not because Jesus did anything wrong, but simply because if he was just a man... He's the worst sibling to ever have because he's perfect. And perfect siblings are annoying. (laughs) And they show us who we are, and it's frustrating because we don't want to see that. We don't really want to see us compared to somebody else. Who Who here has siblings that you like being compared to? Anyone? You like being compared to your siblings? (laughs) Well, then you're the one that people resent. (laughs) So, but what, what, what he's expressing here is, that what they're expressing here is this very basic instinct of a sibling to just go like, I don't want to be compared to my perfect sibling. And everyone keeps doing it. Who is this one who's gone up from Nazareth? Nazareth is terrible. Nazareth is this podunk town. Nothing good ever comes out of, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what is it that comes out of Nazareth but Jesus, who's growing up? It's their older brother. And so they all come together, and they all just look at him and go like, you know what, yeah, sure, there's people trying to kill you. Why don't you just go try to be famous in Jerusalem? If you really believe what you say about yourself, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Go up to Jerusalem. Show yourself to the world. Verse 4. Or actually, end of verse 3. 
that your disciples also may know the works that you're doing. Verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You want to be famous. Don't work in secret. This little podic town is apparently too much for you. You go to the big old city and you make a name for yourself. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John includes in this little note, for not even his brothers believed in him. Remember, John is writing all of this. Every story is meant to show you that, that you, reader, may believe. Don't be like his brothers. It's not about how much they experienced. It's not about how much they knew. They grew up with him. I mean, the only instance we have of Jesus' childhood is when he's 12, teaching all the elders in the temple things they didn't know. You want to talk about a know-it-all sibling. I mean, he's there teaching not only the elders of Jerusalem things about the word of God that they never even conceived. Even when his parents come back, he's just like, I was working on my father's stuff. That's a very hard sibling to grow up with. And Jesus said to them, he uses a unique term here. This is not the term for hour, this is the term for time. Very important in the Gospel of John. We'll talk about it when he starts bringing up the hour that's coming. Here he's just saying, as far as for what day I'm going up, it's not time for me to go up yet. My time has not yet come. In other words, not today. It would be just as innocuous as me saying you know, to you, and you go, like, you know, Ralph, you come up to me and go, you know, let's go up to the New York State Fair. We should go there, and you should be well-known or whatnot. And I go, like, yeah, not today. Sim- similar statement here. And he says to them, look, your, your time is always here. You have no discernment on this whatsoever. You have no idea what forces are at work. You have no idea what the ramifications will be if I go on Monday rather than Thursday. Your time is always now. You think that everything's acceptable because you have no way to discern what's going on. I'm not going up today. Why? It says, I don't expect you to even have that perspective. The world can't hate you. What? The world can't hate you, but not only can it hate me, by nature it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Now, if you thought that his brothers would take that well, uh, you're wrong. Because how does he address this? If evil people are your friends, that's a bad sign. If your friends are only ever encouraging you to do things that are wrong, that's a bad sign. You are far more defined by your enemies than your friends. And what Jesus is saying here is, all the leaders of Jerusalem has set their teeth on me. Why? Because their works are evil. Anyone can be a friend of someone else. But if evil people hate you, I'm more likely to trust you than just about anyone else. The same thing with Jesus here. What does he say? The world can't hate you, brothers. 
but it must hate me because I testify about it that its works are evil. I don't hide from it. I don't shy away from what it says. Look at the authority with which he speaks. He's talking about all the rulers of Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Israel. All the priests, all of the people that teach these, synagogue leader, all the way up. And what is he saying about them? I am testifying about them that their works are evil across the board. And he uses a term for it that's quite unusual. He doesn't even just say the leaders. He doesn't even just say the people of Israel. He doesn't say the people in Jerusalem. No, the world. I testify about it that its works are evil. And if the world loves you, that is call for concern. I would count it a great failure of my life if I ever gained fame for anything other than preaching the gospel. I don't want the world to like me. I want the world to love Christ. I want its works to be exposed as evil and I want it to trust in Christ. And so what is it that Christ says here? He says to his brothers, go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast. My time, my day is not here yet. It's not fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. His brothers went up to the feast. And then Jesus went up a few days later. Now his time has come. But he didn't go up publicly. He went up privately. The Jews were looking at him, uh, for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. That's, that's always a good thing. That always leads to good stuff. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. That's a lonely life, man. Your brothers are setting you up because they believe that you just have your eyes on the stars. You know that people are trying to kill you. Everyone's muttering about you. Nobody believes you. And you have to go up to the feast that's one of the most joyous times of the year quietly and privately, because otherwise people will mob you and try to kill you. That's the setting. <laughs> and that is supposed to set us up to be surprised by the next verse. Verse 14, where John then turns the whole thing. So Jesus, I'm not going up. I'm going to go up privately. I'm not going to go with my brothers. I'm not going to go with this. People are seeking to kill me. So what's the first thing he does in the middle of the feast? About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. <laughs> now, wait a minute. If you're trying to go up to the Feast of Booths secretly, privately, quietly, so that nobody kills you, this is the last thing you want to do. The Feast of the Booths is focused on the temple. All the higher-ups are there. They have all their own special temps, all gilded up nice because they're the special, you know, glowing people. And so they're all in the temple, and he goes there to teach. He goes there to the center of the Temple Mount to teach. And the Jews all marveled. Because it's just not the leaders there, it's everyone. And they're all marveling, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? In other words, he didn't study with any of our rabbis, and yet he knows the word of God. How is that possible? Because the way that their teachers would teach, would, they would quote one another. Because this was, this was the idea that in humility, we don't just give our own thoughts about the scriptural text. We quote the teacher that we learned under who quotes the teacher that they learned under. And through this chain of good teaching, we are kept safe. 
Jesus never does this. He never quotes other rabbis. He just states the word of God as it comes out of his mouth. Higher than any prophet, any psalmist, anyone. And so everyone's marveling at this. He's never studied with one of our rabbis, and yet he understands the scriptures to a level that no human being can possibly have. So Jesus answered them and says, Don't marvel at my teaching. It's not even mine. You want to know who I appeal to? You want to know who my teacher is? You claim that your rabbi was taught by their rabbi, and they quote that, and in that is found safety. You want to know who my teaching is from? You want to know who I quote? You want to know who I get my teaching from? It's his who sent me. My words, my teaching are not mine. And if anyone wants to test that, I'll give you the test. Verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What? What did he just call the entire gathered assembly inside the Temple Mount, but those who don't desire to do the will of God? If you are still confused about what my words are, he says to them, you do not want to do God's will. That seems a remarkably powerful thing to say to people. How is it that he could say such a thing? What is the will of God that we are to desire? Don't you know that John has already stated it? If anyone desires to do the will of God, he says, this is the will of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. Which means, just like the teaching of the breads, it is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you will know. Mankind, for all of his history, and all of his religions, and all of his attempts, has tried to know first, and then believe out of what we know. That is not the way of following the Lord. It is trusting God, and then you will know. That is a very important distinction. Know that you may believe is what we attempted to do with eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we know and can validate that the word uh, or that the, that the world is made the way God has said it, I'm going to go verify it, make sure that's good, have the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I'm going to be able to weigh good and evil and find out which one is God. That's what Adam and Eve were really doing. Our eyes to be opened to be able to take something, a knowledge that God knew that we can't wield, that we may be the arbiters of what is good and what is evil, and what happened, but that evil infected every part of what we are because we were never made to know that without reliance on God. And so what does God say? He doesn't say to his newfound creation, Gain great knowledge for yourself that the tree of life is all this in a bag of chips. No, what he says is, eat from it and you will live. Consume the flesh of Christ and you will live. 
Drink his blood and you will live. Believe on him and you will live. Trusting him comes first. Knowledge comes second. We have forgotten, even in our own culture, that we are not the deciders of whether or not God is right. God is right whether you know it or not. God is right no matter your ignorance. God is right no matter how much you know or how much you don't know. God is right. That is how the scriptures are written. That is how Jesus speaks. And it doesn't matter that his brothers don't believe him. It doesn't make them right. It doesn't make them understandably wrong. It makes them wrong. And what does Jesus do when he says this to the entire gathered assembly on the Temple Mount? He says to them, if anyone's will, if any of y'all's will, is to do the will of the Father in heaven, you will already then know the validity of my words. It's one of the reasons why I love the story of Simeon so much. Remember him? God had promised to him through the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he saw the Lord's salvation. And it wasn't for any word that Jesus said. When Jesus was brought to the temple, Simeon recognized him right away. Don't ask me how. God saw to it that he would recognize the Savior of the world. The one who would bring consolation to Israel. God sees to it that his people that he is saving recognize the words of Christ. He said, well then, but I really want a method where, where somebody who is an unbeliever can come up and they can verify it point by point and we can just prove it all the way and at the end, they will then believe Jesus. No, they won't. Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. You cannot reason your way to trust in Christ. And so many, so many attempts at evangelism have tried and tried and tried and it never works. Let me show you the validity of his resurrection. The most highly attested to moment in all of ancient history. Historically provable. It's not enough. I can teach you the fulfillment from the Old Testament. Things that were proclaimed hundreds of years before they came to fulfillment. Marvelous. Not enough. Not enough. What does Jesus say to Lazarus in the, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? He says to the rich man who says, look, 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 send me back to my brothers. Send me back to my brothers and I will tell them about the torments of this place. They will believe me. And what does Jesus say? They have Moses and they have the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe their own brother even if he rises from the dead. The problem is not knowledge, Jesus says to all of them. I'm not here to prove to you who I am. I'm here to teach you. And those whom God is saving will hear my words. Friends, this, this sets us free from all, of the, from all of the schemes and all of the attempts of mankind's mind can come up with to try to trick people to become Christians so that we get to be famous. Just preach the scriptures to them. Give them the word of God. Preach the scriptures to your own heart first because it is in doing this that God continually fills our life with dependency on Christ. Every day, not just at salvation. Believe and live 
believe and live is not a description that at one point I believe and therefore I'm saved. No, it is that I have come to life in Christ and this new life in Christ believes in Christ every single day. And we trust in him from day one unto day eternity. We will still trust Christ in the new heavens and new earth. It is that belief that we live by. It is that trusting in his word that we live by. Not our interpretation of his word. His word. While we admit we may be wrong about our perspectives. It's okay. It's okay to be wrong. We're all going to die with wrong theology. I promise you. I've tried for 20 years to get perfect theology. I'm nowhere close. Nowhere close. None of you are. Nobody is. God is too high above us for that. So we will die with wrong theology. It's okay. Don't worry. You're not dying with the wrong Savior. It's not about knowledge. It's about Christ. It's about the glory of God. It's about the kingdom to come and the world that he made. It's not about getting right all of these things. And what Jesus is saying is even if it was, you couldn't do that. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. That's one person in all of history that's ever met that. He never seeks his own glory, only seeks the glory of the Father who sent him. Well, the Father only sent one, and he, Jesus, never sought to establish his own glory. No, it was his role to point everyone to the Father. By the way, the Holy Spirit's role is to point everyone to the Son. Which means if you were a Christian and you were only ever enamored with the Spirit, something's wrong. The Spirit's not ever teaching about himself. He's always pointing you to the one who gives life. And that is Christ, the one who purchased it. And Christ, even though we're enamored with him because he is our high priest, always points us to the Father. And the Father remains behind a veil of holiness that we can't look upon his face so that we never imagine that we stand side by side with God. No, we are in his kingdom and he is our king. We don't seek our own glory. Even the perfect son of God didn't seek his glory. And yet there are humans that purport to follow Christ that seek theirs. What a problem. And Jesus gives to them proof of their own failings. They're coming after him because he healed a man on the Sabbath back in chapter 5. And here he points out to them, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Not one of you keeps the law. You break it all the time. You're not capable of There was no law that was ever given so that mankind could prove he's perfect. Mankind only shows his own sinfulness when it comes to the law. What does he say? Moses gave you the law, yet no one keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Without knowing, of course, that their leaders were literally planning his death. Jesus answered them and says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, but not that it's from Moses. It came from the fathers. But you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Interesting. A really interesting argument. Here's the reality. They were required to circumcise a newborn boy eight days after he was born. 
And if he happened to be born on a Friday, you work out eight days, he gets to be circumcised on the Sabbath. Well, that's a work that's forbidden on the Sabbath. And so the rabbis had put together, well, circumcision overrides the Sabbath rule. And so circumcision being more important, we have to circumcise them on the eighth day, even if it falls on a Sabbath. And so Jesus is like, you guys break the law every week. Every single Sabbath, your rabbis are doing circumcisions. Now, is Jesus saying that's wrong? No, no, no. He's just saying it's inconsistent with what you're saying. So watch what he says. Moses gave you circumcision. Right, verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He healed a man on the Sabbath. And they're saying, you worked on the Sabbath. He says, I did the will of the Lord on the Sabbath. That would be just as asinine as me coming up here and saying, you're not supposed to work on Sunday and then calling this work. No, this is what we're here for. And sure, this is attached to work and all this kind of stuff, but this is, this, is what, this is far more important than just a day of rest. This is restful. And what Jesus is saying is, I healed his entire body. You have no problem if you're doing a circumcision on a Sabbath, but you come after me for healing on the Sabbath as if I was just doing something like taking too many steps. I made his whole body well. Do not judge by appearances but judge with something none of us naturally have, right judgment. Right judgment is believing in Christ, submitting to his word, establishing ourselves, entrusting in him, and everything that he has said so far. We are to judge who he is and what he has come here to do with right judgment, not with what appearances they are. If we just judge by appearances, then we will be led astray by those who are able to do miraculous works. We will be led astray by those who, who teach things that sound right, but aren't actually consistent with the scriptures. And what does Christ say here? He says not to don't judge anyone else. No, he says don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. You have got to be able to come to the point of saying, this is who Christ is. This is what he has come to do. Make up your minds. That's an important judgment to come down on. You say, well, how does that apply? It applies by this. Even as a Christian, it is hard for us to have right judgments. Isn't it? Things come along our lives. Circumstances intersect with our lives. We anticipate difficulties, trials, frustrations, struggles, whatever they are. How can we have right judgment in the midst of this? How is it that we... I don't think any of us set out to have wrong judgments, right? No, nobody really you know, starts off with a New Year's resolution and go, you know what, I'm going to do this here. Um, make wrong decisions that are bad for me. Now, we know that we're going to make wrong decisions that are bad for us, but none of us really has that low of a view of ourselves where we go, yeah, I'm just going to accept who I am and I'm going to embrace my failure, and that's my resolution. Nobody really does that. I mean, if you do do that, you and I need to talk a little bit, because we need some help. We don't intend to go out and make wrong judgments. It's just natural. This is what Jesus is pointing out to them, just like his brothers, just like the people, the Feast of Booths, just like the, the, the leaders in Jerusalem. They didn't intend to set out and go like, you know what I'm going to do is be wrong about the Savior of the world. 
No. But it's natural to be wrong about Christ. This is what the Gospel of John is starting to show us. It is natural to be wrong about Christ. In fact, that is our beginning point as fallen humans. And unless God is saving us, he has just taught on this in the previous chapter, unless the Father is drawing us, none of us will be right about Christ. Friends, let me apply this to us practically and directly. When we are evangelizing, not only are we not just trying to convince this person of the validity of the gospel, even if you could convince them, that's not enough. Nobody comes to the Father unless the Father is drawing them. And so how does that change our attitude of evangelism? We are faithfully giving them the word of God without changing it, no matter the outcomes. I will tell you, I, I grew up in a faithful church and I am forever grateful for this. But I wasn't a Christian until I was 11. I must have heard the gospel a thousand times before I became a Christian, faithfully given. Does that mean the first 999 were failures? No. And even when you come and evangelize someone else, even if they reject you that day, do not take it personal. Do not do any of these things. No. Just be thankful that if God is saving that person after preaching 1,476 times the gospel into their hearts using various Christians, be thankful that you were part of that. Even if you were only responsible for numbers 1,412 through 1,419, and someone else has to come along and continue in that message, we can't change the message, we can't change the gospel, we can't change hearts. We can just be faithful to what Christ has called us to. And for a church, and for Christians, that is all our job is, to be faithful to Christ, no matter Sometimes that leads to fame. Sometimes that doesn't. May God find us faithful regardless. May we judge with right judgment. May we preach the gospel to those who will misinterpret it, stumble over it, and find it offensive. May we still continue to preach life in Christ's name because there's nothing else. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. There's no other mediator between God and his people. And there is no other that has taken upon themselves the sins of mankind and gifts us in return the righteousness of him who lives forever. That is in Christ alone. Preach it. Preach it like your life depends on it, because it does. Preach it like their life depends on it, because it does. Don't lay it aside. Let's thank God for it. Our Father, in all these things, it is quick to assert ourselves, our interests, our desires, even our own glory if we are distracted to such a degree. But Father, we are grateful that in your kingdom, in your kingdom, are people who you have saved that surprise us. Wretches like me, 
people that we would not naturally get along with. But Father, in your kingdom is fellowship aplenty. We thank you, Father, for this. We pray that you settle our hearts, make up our minds to glory in Christ no matter the cost. We thank you for his words. They are salve to the herder's soul. They are honey on our lips, just as your law is. Father, we pray that you solidify us in the gospel of grace. We pray that you grow us up by the power of your word, by the intention of the Holy Spirit, that we may look on our lives and say, what blessings from the Lord have nothing to do with me. We have only done what is our duty, and we are still grateful servants. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the kingdom to come and the hope of eternal life for all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. We pray this to find who we are more and more as we grow up.